Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Welcome to Tailboard Talk with Chris Rasmussen, Craig Nelson, and Jeff Wallen. Every month we explore different topics of interest to you, our cohorts in fire and emergency services. So whether you sit back and listen, sound off on the message board, or call in live to be part of the conversation, we welcome you to join us in our mission to improve the fire service for those we serve and those we serve beside. Now coming to you live from the Great White North, this is Tailboard Talk on Fire Engineering Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to Tailboard Talk for Friday, February 23rd. This is Jeff. This is Craig. And this is Jeff. I'm Chris. I'm calling from a different line. You can't see me, but I'm really here, I swear. Chris uh, obviously isn't with us this evening. He has a, a son in town who has to return to school, and this is the last night he's going to be home from his break. And so he won't see him for a while, so he... Won't be here this evening, but I'm sure he'll catch up with us on the next episode. Yeah. I thought that was completely unreasonable, by the way, yeah. but we have to live with it. What are we going to do? No commitment. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. no commitment yeah. to what's important yeah. in his life. Dependability is one of our values. Oh, my gosh. He talks about it all the time. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, hey, it's an early spring here in the great white north. It, it hasn't been a very white winter for us. We've been in this beautiful little trough of warm weather with everything sailing south of us. In fact, it's actually been colder and snowier south of us than it has been where we are at right now. So everybody's always curious about what the weather's like right now. We had a high of 50 yesterday and uh, just beautiful on and off above average temperatures scheduled for the next month. Yeah. Usually <laughs> we cover it just to show how extreme it is here. It hasn't been that extreme. So no, pretty, uh, pretty boring. And we'll take that. Not at all. Now, that's not an invitation for everybody to move to the greater Fargo-Moorhead area because it's so wonderful here. This is just a one-year blip. It likely is. <laughs> Normally, it's not so great. Uh, all right. Well, um, I was kind of searching through Internet stories here over the last week and actually got a little um, email ring. I follow uh, Kurt Verone in, uh, in his law blog. And one of the stories that came across that uh, sort of intrigued me was uh, OSHA has developed a uh, some new proposals to the fire brigade standard. And don't turn off the radios yet. I might have five more minutes of interesting uh, content before we're done here. Everybody loves a show about OSHA. You said OSHA and standard in the same sentence. That's, I think that's where we lost everybody. Oh, yeah. Well, just hold on. We'll lose some more before we're done here. <laughs> so although we don't know it very well because this standard, this proposed standard is pretty new. It's uh, been out less than two months. Um, there are some pretty large sweeping changes that we'll, we'll talk about kind of in general, and I'm sure other folks will be discussing over the course of the next 30 to 60 days or so. Um, this is open for comments until May 6th, which is really right around the corner. And after that, who knows what happens with the standard. So this is the time to collect public comments. And so if you haven't taken the time to check that out, um, we'll 
kind of emphasize this at the end of the show again. Um, maybe one of the easiest ways to get there is to follow Kurt Verone um, or to uh, search for the Fire Law blog. And it's one of the uh, trending stories that he's got out of the last few days. Uh, but uh, just maybe a little exciting background. So the the fire brigade standard doesn't necessarily apply to your fire department, depending on what state you live in. So the uh, when this was when the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Act was first put together, and the fire brigade standard came out, um, the the federal government's view of their role was a little bit different, and felt that their authority did not extend um, to local government agencies and employees, and to and in most cases to federal government employees either. And so it was written more along the lines of industrial fire brigades, and over time, local states. Um, started up their own OSHA offices as well and adopt the federal standards. And for a lot of states like Minnesota, they've determined that that fire brigade standard in Minnesota will apply to municipal fire departments as well. And so we are an OSHA state and they've made that determination on the fire brigade standard. Uh, and so it doesn't apply universally everywhere, but over time it's been increasingly working its way in state by state um, as OSHA has been working their way in, even in non-OSHA states, to to cover different industries and businesses. And in this new version of the standard, they actually take this a little bit further by defining two different groups the standard applies to. And one of those groups would be um, work emergency response. So I'm probably not going to get it right. And of course, I didn't... uh, Workplace emergency response teams, which are the traditional fire brigades, and then they also define groups as emergency service organizations, which would be our our typical um, fire departments that we would think of, at least paid fire departments. The other backside of that is, does this apply to only career departments or does it apply to volunteer or paid on call fire departments? And in the early days of the standard, this obviously didn't apply to volunteers. Um, you have to reach a pretty high bar of compensation in terms of a retirement plan or hourly pay that you'd get that's well above what most paid on call fire departments utilize before they qualify. Um, but states have oftentimes said almost all volunteer employees are government employees, regardless of their compensation, are entitled to a safe workplace and fair representation um, in workplace-related issues. And so for a lot of states, volunteer fire departments are covered as well. This standard doesn't indicate whether you are or not. It allows those issues to uh, lie with the states. But as standards progress and consensus standards work their way into ISO for evaluation and have worked their way into accreditation for determining service levels and appropriate services that are provided and so forth, this is just another step where... OSHA is now also incorporating by reference portions of, or in some cases, the entirety of certain NFPA standards. And I'm not 100% clear which of those standards have been brought in. The uh, The proposed rulemaking document is, uh, I copied and pasted it from the website, which is a horrible place to read it. <laughs> the, the link to bring to the Federal Register is just absolutely painful. So I copied and pasted the raw text from that just into a Word document, and it banged out at like 228 pages of text to read through. Uh, and the first 
two thirds to three quarters of the document is explaining what they're doing and why before you get to the actual language that says what the new standard will. Um, I took the end of that and edited that down to just the end. And we have got 22 pages long of what the new OSHA standard is. I don't know what it was before, but 22 pages of an OSHA standard is not a great read either, unless you're having problems falling asleep. So if I nod off in the middle of our session tonight, that might be why as well. Um, so what things have changed? And as I talk through this, Craig has an opportunity to look through the document a little bit more. And from a broad overview perspective, some of the, the more key NFPA standards on fire department training and on fire department equipment and on fire department planning have been incorporated into the proposed rulemaking. And so it would become a safety related issue under OSHA that would require you to identify hazards in the workplace and follow certain practices. Um, and I guess my thought was without clearing this with Craig and feel free to veto me. And if you've got another topic for tonight, you know, it's never too late to inject and, and change the discussion. Um, but maybe we would be able to just kind of go through each one of these sections in the standard briefly and uh, talk about what that section covers or addresses and maybe hit a couple highlights that I've been aware from by having read through the document and and um, it won't cover it in detail at all because I figure we got 20 to 30 minutes in this, this topic before yeah. we lose folks, <laughs> yep. us included. Uh, all right. So, <clears throat> and, and with that, I, if you're listening to this podcast and wondering, is this going to apply to our fire department? Um, is this going to get passed? Uh, the typical process is that they're open for public comments for a certain period of time. And then they go back and review the comments and determine if any additional work needs to be done or if they feel they can move forward with the standard and start to talk about timeframes for implementation or the time needed to change and rework the document before it's brought back for a second notice of proposed rulemaking. So the future is definitely uncertain with this. Um, but I believe um, Kurt Verona reported back, or I read in some of the earlier portions of this document, that they've been considering some of these moves for about 20 years or so. And so there have been several different smaller initiatives to look at should we be revamping the standard, which have ultimately not resulted in wanting to propose a change and, and looking at uh, doing something differently. So it isn't something that's happened just overnight, uh, but most of us are probably unaware of, what, of what's been going on in the background uh, to, to bring this to bear. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm kind of curious. I have started to see some of the language in NFPA. Uh, you talk about ESO in here, and I, I saw that just the other day. I was looking in the FPA, and there's ESO, and now here's ESO. And, uh, so, you, mm -hmm. like you said, they're starting to merge some of these the terminology with it. I guess that's where I'm kind of curious. Is, is I'm curious to hear what these highlights are and what the what changes from a lot of the things we're currently doing. Because a lot of us are trying to at least, if we aren't following NFPA, we're we're following it pretty closely. Mm -hmm. What what really changes? I, I'm curious to hear about this. Yeah, and, and one part I'm not clear about the new rules is when they're referencing NFPA standards in, in portion or in total, it's not as direct as you might think in this language, but in some of the rest of that multi-page document, they talk a little bit more about their philosophy. I don't have any kind of a clear handle about how, how closely you need to be following 
all of the components of an NFPA standard if it's talked about here, or if you need to follow the wording of the OSHA standard in doing something a little more general. What I've noticed is they don't typically tell you exactly how to do the things you need to do, but they tell you the types of things that you need to do. And sometimes they give you examples of what would be acceptable, but they leave it up to you to determine what works for your municipality. So that seems a little more encouraging than I might have originally thought. And uh, I had heard originally that the NFPA 1500 standard was incorporated into this. And if you've ever spent time reading the NFPA 1500 standard, one of the issues that comes along with that is that standard more than any other cross-references so many other NFPA standards that if you try to comply with 1500, you're probably, you probably need to comply with um, a good dozen or two dozen other standards at the same time to become fully compliant with that one. And so it's probably this, it might be one of the standards that's the least complied with altogether because it's so all encompassing that it's really difficult to achieve. It takes a long time to fill every single hole of it. Maybe it doesn't take as long to fill 80% of it or 90% of it. So they didn't make this simple. <laughs> At least I don't think it's simple on a first read. No, and, and that's that's one of the things that always strikes me, and I guess I'll, I'll get on my soapbox for a minute here, but it, some of these things frustrate me sometimes being in the fire service for quite a few years now. And looking how we, we how we complicate things so much to the point where people really can't understand them, and we think the more we do that, the better and more effective it'll be. And it has the opposite effect. It, it's uh, mm-hmm. I've always used the example of if you write a policy book or an SOG book that's as thick as a big city phone book, it's pointless. You yeah. just you just wasted everybody's time, and then that that frustrates me with some of these government entities. And I realize I work for a government entity, and I'm part of the problem then, but. <laughs> That we can't simplify this stuff down uh, than more than what they do. I think a lot of times it's it's take it and run with it and see how much stuff you can put in there. But yeah. So yeah, like I said, I, I'm curious to see as we go through this uh, what what we pick out. Yeah, um, I was surprised. The more that I read through it, the more that I felt well, this does seem to make sense. It seems to align with the type of work you need to do for accreditation, the type of work you need to do oftentimes to try to get the best ISO score possible and terminology is starting to become more familiar. Um, and it's, it is written a little more in plain English than maybe other standards have been in the past. Um, but yeah, let's just, let's just dive in so we can get from the beginning to the end. This standard is organized in chapters. So it has chapter letters, like the first one that we're looking at. There's some definitions in here and, and a scope and purpose at the beginning that we'll kind of brush over. Uh, and then chapter C goes into the organization of a workplace emergency response team um, and the establishment of emergency service capabilities. And basically it says you need to identify what type of services as an industrial fire brigade you're going to provide and which ones you're not. And you should name that so that way everybody is clear about, you know, the work that you're going to do, where it begins and where it ends and where your local fire department or emergency response or emergency services organization would probably pick up. I briefed over that one to get to section D, which is a little more for our mainstream audience. And that's the establishment of um, the emergency services organization establishment of an emergency response plan and emergency services capability, chapter D. Uh, And so basically you have to decide what fire service. Let's see if I'm getting this right here. Okay. Team participation, 
All right. So the first component that it requires is for you to do um, a hazard and vulnerability and impact analysis of what could possibly go wrong in your community. So you've decided what are the things that that the public needs an emergency response to. And for a smaller department that's never done that, that might be a real daunting task. That's one of the issues that I have with this. Um, But through accreditation, you need to do this. You oftentimes need to do at least a part of this for, um, for FEMA grants, identify your community, identify your critical infrastructure. um, And, and in classes at the fire Academy, um, they'll go through identifying um, likely natural disasters that might occur, large industrial buildings that might need protection, critical infrastructure like power generation, water generation that you might have in your municipality that you need to provide protection for. And so you need to go through that type of a process and have a formalized hazard analysis done in your community. Um, and then based on that, you have to determine what services is your emergency service organization, your fire department, or this also applies to EMS departments but and technical rescue-only departments, hazardous materials teams, but does not apply to law enforcement. So they kind of made a, made a break right there and saying the other groups are all generally included in this. So what services is your fire department going to provide? And if you can't provide all the services for all the hazards, you have to name who's going to do that in your place. And one kind of key area where that might come in is technical rescue. Can every fire department provide the full range of technical rescue services for incidents that might happen, even if it's a really low likelihood? So if you've got an area that has a wind that has a wind farm or, or a couple of those in your jurisdiction, but you're not prepared to do a technical rescue from a turbine, if an employee gets injured up there, who's going to do that for you? So that's kind of a, that's a big change from where we're at right now, where we simply respond reactively to what we have. And I can see that being a huge challenge across the fire service. And, and it could be a huge opportunity for maybe some model, some model hazard analysis methods or some, some some typical hazard analysis programs or results to kind of be put together because, you know, the thing that might affect your jurisdiction, what your hazards are, are probably the same for your neighboring mutual aid department and the same for the next neighboring mutual aid department until you get to the next one that's close to a lake and you don't have a lake. So now there's something a little bit different. But a lot of these things could be consistent from place to place to place. And does it make sense for for thousands of of paid on call and career departments to be duplicating the same thing when you could work off of a common core, maybe. That's yeah. And that the, you kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. You start mentioning ISO and NFPA and OSHA. And, uh, it starts to kind of get, like you said, <laughs> we're, now we're taking guidance from so many different organizations, uh, mm-hmm. accreditation and the center for public safety excellence. Um, and so as you talk about this document, that makes me think of uh, like our standard of cover. Our standard of cover has all that in it. It has all that information about right. what are our hazards, what are our risks, how do we respond to them, uh, et cetera. But is that is that acceptable? Is that not? Is that? Yeah, my, my guess is that it is because it doesn't, the standard doesn't tell you how to do that, but that you need to complete one. And so there can be a lot of cases where if you've, if you're doing the work to comply with OSHA, you're doing a lot of the work you would need for accreditation or a lot of the work to gain credit with ISO. Like uh, the next area in here says you need to identify those facilities or buildings that need a pre-incident plan, which they're calling a PIP. I haven't heard it called a PIP before. Um, I've heard of that as a performance improvement plan when things maybe aren't going so well at work. Uh, but you need to not just have pre-plans, but identify the buildings that need the pre-plans as well, too. Um 
And then it requires that you go through an annual update of your pre-plan. Sound familiar? <laughs> ISO, you can get full credit by doing it. If the OSHA rules come forth, it says as an organization, you must do that on an, on an annual basis so that your firefighters are prepared to face the hazards of that building that they might have to go into. And that's where all this is driven from is firefighter safety. So the comprehensiveness of this is to make sure that you're eliminating hazards in the workplace by planning for them and making sure you're properly equipped and trained and prepared for the responses you might go to. Um, you also have to identify the different levels of responders within your organization and what training and equipment would be appropriate for them to be simple. So you might have firefighters in your department that uh, some are interior firefighters, but some bearded, non-bearded or you know, challenges with wearing an air pack will drive um, water supply apparatus, go on emergency medical calls. And you need to identify appropriate tiers for your organization and determine what's the appropriate training and PPE for them, which I actually kind of like as well, too, because not everybody in the fire department is necessarily treated the same. We don't say everybody's going to be an interior firefighter, and we might not need to respond the same way with everybody for their training and their equipment and so forth. That's kind of a nutshell. Okay. So that's, that's D? For that second. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. D. This goes all, right. all the way through all to right. T. <laughs> I said 20 minutes for the show, right? Yeah. Okay. I got to talk faster or talk less. One of the two. Um, the next section E indicates uh, team member and responder participation. And I can summarize that quickly. Um, firefighters need to participate in training. They need to participate in the planning process and have the opportunity to participate in the planning processes for, for this. So, it also says this isn't just the work of the bosses, but also the bosses shouldn't exclude the employees in being able to do this and to have access to all the plans and uh, the stuff that you're working on here. That brings us to D. Establishment of the emergency response plan and emergency services capabilities. Um, this kind of continues off the previous paragraphs, um, but it goes a little bit further and also um, identifies that um, if you're getting like EPA reports of known quantities of hazardous materials that are reported to your fire department through other federal requirements, you need to have a pre-plan on file for those buildings as well. Uh, um, you need to identify the resources that your crews may need and make planning for those. Uh, and um, it, it also, uh, you need to identify what resources you will need to be able to respond to all of the incidents that might occur in your jurisdictions, the small ones and the large ones. And for the larger ones, if you don't have the appropriate resources, you need to identify mutual aid partners to provide the level of assistance you would need. Most of us are doing that now anyways, but they're saying if you're not, then you could be putting your firefighters at risk by not figuring out how can we get more resources on the scene when they need them. Okay. Uh, section F, risk management. So we need to put together a written risk management plan. And um, part of that puts into writing the previous work that we had to do, really at identifying the hazards, identifying the activities we're going to do, the training, uh, talk about vehicle operations, operations at emergency incidents, and some of the rest of this document talks about how to do that. Um, and 
at a minimum, we have to identify the actual or anticipated hazards that are going to be there in the workplace. They've pulled in previously the um, respiratory protection standard and the infection control standard were, were separate. And they're pulling those now into this document in this section and indicating that you have to meet those requirements as well, too. So um, you have to be prepared for bloodborne pathogens, infection control. Um, basically, your right to know uh, aware programs and so forth. Um, and have policies in place to talk about extraordinary situations the team members might be in after making that risk assessment. Um, and then we get into medical requirements. Kind of <laughs> funnier. So here it refers to the NFPA standard on medical evaluations. Um, it, it tells you what types of tests need to be incorporated into this. It, it's not a surprise for anybody who's been looking at the NFPA 1581, is it? 1582. I think. 1582. Um, but they're incorporating those same things right here into this standard now as well. Um, they indicate that, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, medical evaluations need to occur at least biannually. So it's not necessarily annually, but if your provider has indicated that more stringent monitoring is required that you need to work with the requirements from your medical provider. So um, there, there is some, some variation here, depending on what you have locally. Um, you need to establish a surveillance program for your firefighters who have been exposed to um, byproducts of combustion on an average 15 or more times a year and document those exposures, regardless of whether they're wearing PPE or not. From what I understand here. Okay. <clears throat> now, I don't know what that means. Does that mean, yes, we have incident reports and we have, we put the members that attended the incidents and is that enough? I don't know if that indicates who was in an IDLH atmosphere, who was exposed to toxic byproducts of combustion. And so I guess we'll see kind of where this goes on a surveillance program. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea and helps document the exposures that have occurred for a member that's having medical issues later on in their career to say it, it, it reasonably had to come from here, not from their outside job, not from a second job, not from their main career if you're paid on call, but here are the number of significant exposures that a person has been around. Um, so I like the principle. I don't know how it's done. And so you can freak out about it. Or you can say, hold it. If, if we figure out a simple way to do that, though, a reasonable way to do that, that's that's probably not a bad thing for everybody. Okay. I'm, and I'm, I'm mostly with you here so far. It mm -hmm. seems like the bulk of this kind of fits into NFPA. So if you're, if you're yeah. following that, then you should be good with this, but uh, we're, we're only partway through this. So right. <laughs> we'll, we'll see here. I, um, uh, yeah. Cautiously optimistic that it blends maybe better than I, I maybe thought mm -hmm. it might. Yeah. I, from what I've seen, it sure seems to. Um Fire departments need to have established a behavioral health and wellness program for their members. Oh, shocker. How many of us are talking about that, that now? Um, that involves diagnostic assessment, short-term counseling, crisis intervention, and referral services for folks who are experiencing um, acute or chronic uh, psychological issues in connection to their, to their work, um, which is... Great. You need to be informing people on a regular basis about these services and then approaching them after significant incidents. All things that, that really do make sense. Uh, fitness for duty. 
So departments need to, I'm going to, I'm going to quote from here right now so that it's not me speaking, but this is the folks who put together a document. The emergency services organization shall establish and implement a process to evaluate and to reevaluate and to reevaluate annually the ability of team members and responders to perform essential job functions based on the type and level of services and the tiers team members and responders established in those previous sections. So what do I need to do like the entrance exam every year? That's I guess that's what well, the first thing that came to my mind. It, I mean it, it might be. Makes sense. Does that mean you have a series of firefighting tasks you need to demonstrate you can do, like donning and doffing an air pack, being able to do a search without, you know, having claustrophobia effects, simulated ventilation? I don't, I don't know. And it doesn't say in the main language what that means. And I don't know what their interpretations yet. So I first jumped to, oh, we have to all do our, do the entrance exam every single year. And that's one way that it might occur, but that's not necessarily the only way. And there are departments that do like annual skills. There's 12 things you need to demonstrate by the end of the year. It doesn't say it has to happen all at the same time either. So I think there might be lots of options to do that, but you would have to come up with something to, to be able to demonstrate they're, they're still competent at their job. They're good at their job and do it on an annual basis so that we're staying engaged and we're provided with the right type of training to make sure that we are, that, that we're prepared to serve and serve safely. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of interesting. Um, we need to establish a health and fitness program and have a health and, and f- fitness coordinator, more to speak. Um, the program should be designed to see overall responder health and fitness, a periodic, but not to exceed three years fitness assessment for all responders, exercise training that's available during work hours and education and counseling regarding health promotion for all responders. Doesn't necessarily sound bad on the surface. How do we do that? I, I don't know. Um, but I mean, we have a program that we use right now, and it's a voluntary fitness program. And at least in theory, and sometimes more than in theory, we've had some of these other components as well, too. It kind of ebbs and goes with the amount of uh, interest that we have as an organization about having a coordinated health and safety program. So at the minimum, we have testing on a voluntary basis with some incentives you can get for being in better physical fitness. But uh, writing something like this into the requirements to say the job is physically demanding enough. And here's where I do like the bigger guidance document. I read through this and this is about where I started to drop off and say, I got to get to the end because I, I can't, I don't have four more hours to keep reading this. But they explained why having a physical fitness program and evaluation was so important because of the physically de- demanding nature of our job and, and the ability for or the likelihood of injury to occur when we're not in good physical condition to do the strenuous job that we'll have to do on very little notice and with a lot of uncertainty. Those things make a lot of sense. and They can make a lot of sense when you're bringing these arguments to your city administrators, elected officials about the cost that you might need and the effort you might have to put into running a program like this. Section H is on training. And it's a bit longer, but I can hit a couple highlights. They they break it down into two areas. The, the minimum training you should have before you start working as an emergency services person and the ongoing training, more or less. It's worded differently, but kind of means the same thing. And so you need to establish what type of knowledge, skills, and abilities are required for each team member based on their classification and their level within your organization. Like some people might be responsible for providing technical rescue services and some are not. So not everybody needs the same training. 
Um, and you should be restricting the members of your team to performing those duties only after they've had the training. And they actually give an example in the other document, like before responding to a hazardous materials call, they need to at least be at hazardous materials. Oh, crap. Either operational or awareness. I can't recall which they said. But you can get the idea that before you're even allowed to go on a call of that nature, you need to have a certain baseline of training that you set here. And it might not be the, the training you ultimately want them to be at, but enough to be safe, first of all, and then enough to function practically when you get there. You'd have good instructors. Um, a few other technical things to make sure that you're not um, discriminating against people with disabilities or language issues and that kind of stuff. Um, each member needs some training in NIMS. Everybody needs CPR and AED training in your organization. You need to meet the HAZWOPER standard. Uh, and then each person who's going to be a structural firefighter needs to meet the requirements of NFPA 1001. One place where they incorporate that in directly. Um, and they're performing at least to the job requirements of NFPA 1081. Every vehicle driver operator must meet the guess what standard there, NFPA 1002. Um, officers need to meet 1021. Wildland responders need to be red carded or 1140. Search and rescue members. Um, doing technical rescue need to meet 1006, um, marine environments 1005. So, okay. And then proficiency, you need to have some type of annual skills checks to make sure that each team member is proficient in the areas that they have to provide services for in their level of training. Because some fire departments, your firefighters are also driver operators and other organizations, they're not, they're separate. If you're both, you should have an annual skills check for whatever those skills are you think that are important that would follow that NFPA standard. So again, where does that go? If the NFPA standard talks about annual skills, then you probably need to kind of follow that. If not, you have to develop your own is my guess. Again, first blush read by a non-expert on OSHA. <laughs> <laughs> There's a section on industrial um, facility preparedness, and I'm gonna move on to section J on emergency services facility preparedness. So you have to make sure that you are designing your facilities for firefighter safety so that you have proper decon, disinfection, cleaning, and storage of PPE and equipment. Um, there's a whole section on fire poles and making sure that they have the standard safety things that you need to have there and that there needs to be proper fire detection, suppression alarm systems, occupant notification systems within the building, and particularly in and outside of the sleeping areas and the living areas. Um, you need to protect against um, exposure to vehicle emissions in those living areas. Ensure that contaminated PPE is not brought into the living area. Do all these things sound pretty normal, like with the NFPA station on, on fire stations? Yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Most of this is is happening in, in most places or in at least a lot of fire departments. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least if, if it isn't yet, they're working on it. They're aware of it. Yeah, the next section is on equipment and PPE. In the equipment section, you need to determine what equipment you need to safely perform your job to effectively perform the services for the public. And um, you also need to make sure that you are inspecting, maintaining, and functionally testing that equipment um, at least annually in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions and as necessary to ensure that the equipment is in safe and working order. Okay, common sense, but now we're saying you, you must, you shall. This is something we have to do. It's not just a good practice if we've got the time to make that happen. Um, and for PPE, we need to make sure that we're wearing the type of PPE 
that's appropriate for the services we're providing and that it's provided at no cost to our employees. And then they reference several different NFPA standards for different types of PPE. Makes sense to me. Uh, it gets into the weeds on a few other things like people bring in their own personal personal equipment to bear and that kind of stuff and cleaning. And then it moves on to vehicles. So you need to make sure that your um, vehicles are properly, uh, I'm really paraphrasing here, inspected and maintained, um, at least with the schedules shown in NFPA 1910 for aerials um, and um, the standards for um, pumpers in that appropriate standard, that the water pumps meet the NFPA standards, that you are ensuring that contaminated equipment and PPE does not make it into the crew cab area of the apparatus. Uh, the driver operators need to have appropriate training before they're operating the motor vehicle. You need to remain seated. The, the standard normal things you might have in there establish response standards, in, including identifying how you will how you will um, approach situations where you're approaching a red light or a stop sign, going against the flow of traffic. All of these things are outlined in the NFPA standard. And it's, it's funny; it doesn't say follow the follow the NFPA standard specifically, but that you have to identify how your organization is going to approach those situations. And then we get into pre-incident planning, section M. And we hit on this earlier, that basically those facilities that you might have to respond to that are large enough or have unusual enough hazards um, need to have pre-incident plans. And it lists what should be in a pre-incident plan. That's crazy enough, there's an NFPA standard on that. Um, and it makes sure that those plans are available to the responders when they need them and that they're reviewed annually or when conditions change at the facility. Makes sense? Uh, and why is... Oh, yeah. And there's two different versions of it, one for emergency services organizations and one for fire brigades. A section O, you need to develop an incident management system that might be similar to NIMS and has various components like a NIMS type system or other systems, they don't advocate one particular system. So you can be a blue card department, you can be a NIMS department, you can develop your own system, but it has to have some of those same components that you would expect to have in a system that it scales with the incident. Um, and they list some of those things that are pretty common and um, that folks should be trained before they're put in a leadership responsibility at an emergency operation uh, in a command, command capacity. We're down to P. I said it goes to T, right? We're getting there. Oh, it's, it's yeah. traveling down pretty good. Yeah. Um, not only do you need to have an incident management system, but you actually have to use it when you get to the fire scene, which is crazy. You have to implement it on the scene. Um, as soon as you're able, you really need to have an incident safety officer. And if the incident, if you don't have one, the incident commander is assuming all those roles and responsibilities. I like that the standard is specifically naming that. Because sometimes you've got enough staff to do it, sometimes you don't. Uh, if the incident escalates in, in um, complexity, that the incident command system should uh, should grow as well. Um, it provides for uniform. You need to provide for uniform unified command if you've got multiple agencies that are there in larger structures as the incident grows. Um, you should be conducting a risk risk assessment to determine what you're doing on the incident scene. All these fairly standard things. You need to establish control zones on the incident. Hot, warm, cold, and no-go, basically, is what they say. They don't call it no 
go non-entry, I think is what they say. No entry zone. I like no go better, but, um, and in a weird detail, you need to be able to find a way to mark or indicate to people on the scene where those control zones are. This is a, this is a holdout from the hazmat standard that <laughs> for any of us doing hazmat, sometimes it makes sense at, at least along an entry corridor to indicate where those differences are. But how do you mark those all the way around the scene? I well, to do that at a fire scene would be really, yeah, it'd be very difficult. You got hose lines, it, people yeah. all over the place. Maybe having standardized zone areas you would expect, unless you've said otherwise, like within whatever it is, 20 feet of the structure and a hundred feet downwind, you would call that your hot zone or your yeah. warm zone, depending that there could be creative approaches to these that kind of get around some of the things that are a little, little odd, but here we go. Um, talked about the insurance, the incident safety officer. Um, the two in two out standard is brought into this section of the fire brigade standard. I have seen some written material out there indicating that two in, two out is going away and now it's just going to be one out. But the standard here says that ensure at least two members or responders enter the structure or enclosed area with an ideal H atmosphere as a team, remain in visual and voice contact with one another at all times. A little bit more, ensure that outside the structure enclosed area with the ideal H atmosphere, a minimum of two team members or responders are present to provide assistance to or rescue of the team operating inside the ideal H atmosphere. One of the two team members or responders located outside may be assigned to an additional role, such as IC, so long as the team member is able to perform the assistance or rescue duties without jeopardizing the safety or health of the other team members. So I have personal feelings about whether an IC should or shouldn't be part of a RIT team. If they get called away, could the driver operator be an interim ice, you know, incident commander if something is going bad? But what I like about the standard here is it's leaving those judgment calls up to the local, up to the locals to decide. Now, if you're arriving with a four-person engine company on the on the scene of an incident, and is that enough to go in? Um, two have to be outside. One is allowed to have a duty that they could abandon without, in je without jeopardizing the safety. If you send all four people in, there's nobody outside running the pump. There's nobody outside an incident command if, if an immediate rescue is necessary. Does that meet it or not? The standard kind of says, justify it, I think, is what, the, is what they're basically saying, that you have to justify those risks. So it's not clear cut. I have an opinion that you probably need at least five to make that happen. Maybe in certain circumstances you need six. I don't know, but... Um, it does leave that decision up to the locality, but it sure looks like the, the main tenants of two in and two out are still here. But that's just what I see at first blush. Maybe there's some other things that other folks have read more into the standard that I don't see. Um, need to stay in communications, ensure that PPE is there, accountability needs to be there. You need to provide for a RIC crew. It doesn't say how that happens. Um, medical monitoring, I think it said rehab. You need to have... Um, Procedures in place for rapid evacuation of the building of occupants, like a notification system, as well as a mayday procedures. They kind of do both those things. If, if you're changing modes and people need to leave quickly, you need to have a method of communicating that. Um, and then it moves on into standard operating procedures. And basically, for every type of incident you think you'll be going to, you need to develop an SOP. It needs to be developed with your members and communicated to the members and reviewed annually. All seems to make sense to me. That was a long section that I summarized about SOPs, <laughs> but that's really the essence of it. 
um, they do outline various circumstances that you absolutely have to have SOPs for. So the Mayday situation I was talking about with communications, you need to have a, a protocol for that and coordinating evacuation. Um, you need to have one specifically for vehicular traffic and those operations. And that's kind of been a, a special subject study area in the fire service for a while. So it's not unusual for that to get brought into the standard. And then section R, you need to do post-incident analysis after your larger incidents or a significant near miss. And I like that those are being brought in to say this should be a part of how we do business every day. Um, it lists a couple of the things that should come out in that post-incident analysis. And then also that you need to develop recommendations for changes to improve the workplace conditions for things that you've identified. Makes sense. And lastly, you need to um, go through the entire program, at least annually, and various sections of, the, of this program already say that you need to do their parts annually. Um, but you should go through it, identify any changes, and make those changes. Do all of that. That's a, that's and you're going to be good. Yeah, I, like you said, I, I think there's a lot good in here. I think there's a lot that I hope most departments are already doing. Uh, in, in some ways, it helps reinforce what we're doing but again it's another another entity laying out another uh set of standards or rules to follow that may or may not mesh and they're vague and there's a lot of legalese in there and it mm -hmm. purposely so so then they can interpret a certain way and uh yes some of it maybe helps us interpret it a certain way but <laughs> then it goes to court and you find out <laughs> how it's really interpreted <laughs> yes yes working through case law you know, I think the big takeaway here uh, is that there is a proposed rule change that's out there. And for those states that are OSHA states, you should be aware of it. Somebody either in your department or if you have a county fire department association, that one weird person like me who will go through and read the standard should read about it and talk about it with others. And and we could we could have outlined this and talked for another hour and a half easily in all this stuff because it's really summarizing the little details. But, um, you know, don't just ignore what's here. Um, to take the time to look at it a little bit. Um, you have the opportunity to provide feedback for things that you feel should be different, and they do look and make modifications based on that. So this is kind of that one gimme time before we know what the next steps are. I'd have to think that if a new standard is developed, that um, there's a certain implementation period that's given that's not just simply two weeks or goes into effect 60 days from now, have it all done, good luck, because it's a massive undertaking. But uh, And this could fall apart and say the timing just isn't right or we're pulling half of it or these certain sections out. So it could look dramatically different before the whole process is done. But um, don't approach it blindly and be thinking about some of these things. If there's some of this work that you've been thinking about doing, you might want to think about it a little harder <laughs> and that a lot of these things just make sense for us to do for our members and for the community. And uh, it might be a good time to start getting ready to do the things we know we should be doing, but haven't quite found the time to do. Yeah, I think those are good points. Yeah. For the local departments, if you've got a countywide association, if you've got good working relationships with your neighbors, it doesn't mean every department has to do these things on their own if we get to that point. And we are not at the point that we have to do these things by OSHA's, um, by OSHA's dictation. But if you're getting to the point of wanting to do these things, um, nothing says you have to do them alone either. Um, there, there's nothing like sharing good SOGs, good policies, 
good hazard analysis between multiple organizations that are all kind of in the same boat. And so you can help lighten the workload by everybody taking a little bit and working a little more like one fire department, even if you're multiple fire departments, so that we all don't have to have planners. I mean, it's hard enough just to have people in the organization doing the work that we're looking to do these days. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. And it's remembering we we exist to serve the citizens. And so what's best for the citizens? What do the citizens need? And we have to do that in a way that is safe and proper. The effective way to do it, the safe way to do it is extremely important in that. But and as you talk about, a lot of this is, is maybe you'll force people to, do, to share more resources. And that's, I guess, what I was getting at with we owe that to the citizens. The citizens mm-hmm. don't care necessarily what name your fire truck has on it or what town or city or county it comes from. If they have a problem, whether it be a heart attack or a fire, they want their problem solved as quickly as possible. And and we owe that to them to do that as best we can. Now, I understand it's not possible in all situations, but um, we, we need to continue to work to improve those those efforts. Uh, and one of the things that's always driven me nuts is when I hear smaller departments say, well, we don't have the resources. We don't have the resources. And I, I really haven't, I, there's probably a department out there, but I really haven't run into too many departments that really have no mutual aid. Um, yes, there are probably some that have mutual aid a ways away. Uh, maybe you need to look at making that auto aid then. Uh, but if you don't have enough people or enough trucks or enough equipment, th- then you need to start pooling your resources. And in a lot of cases, that's that's already happening and they're already doing that. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of, Agencies starting this with training in the first place, um, instead of everybody having to prepare a drill every single drill night for all the things that we're doing. What if we teamed up with our neighboring department next door and we either cross train or we take uh, a, our training guy puts together a, a ladder drill and the other training guy puts together a pump drill and uh, we do ladders w- this month at our department. And then our guy goes over to your department and does ladders with you guys. And swaps vice versa. And a lot of interesting things start to happen when you realize that you can make that, uh, that weight and burden of being a training officer for your department, um, a lot uh, lighter and easier to carry if you partner with other organizations, whether your career or paid on call or a combination. And then you find out that if you start having common SOGs together, that weight, that lightens that burden a little bit more. And what if we do some common planning documents around here that, that we share and become more of a, a local, regional, county type standard. And yeah, some wonderful things can happen there when we're all resource short and we're all doing multiple things and f- feel like we could be doing more than we are to, you know, to fill that duty that we owe to the citizens. Yeah. Well, hopefully we didn't put everybody to sleep yet uh, as we probably look to close out the show here. What do we? Yeah. yeah so, well, actually, we went quite a while. Uh, we went longer than I we thought. We went so. way past your 30 minutes there. For the uh, one or two of you that are still left <laughs> listening tonight, um, be, before we close things out, I'd uh, encourage you to consider FDIC. Um, yes. Still coming up. Great educational opportunity, opportunity to uh, for, for vendors, for hands-on displays, hands-on training. And there's a great little feature on the website right now. If you... Uh, go to FDIC's website, just look it up and you're not banking. So um, fire department instructors conference, FDIC can also get you to some interesting financial websites about uh, bank insurance and all that kind yep. of stuff. Um, but they, they have multiple mini previews of different speakers in the classes that they're going through. And so uh, it, it, you might find something that just hits on you with a particular speaker and what they're talking about with a five minute clip that's that's presenting some of the things that they are working on. It's, it's kind of a neat little interesting thing to try to help you feel what is this class going to be like? What is this instructor going to be like? And it might be just that little thing that uh, 
tipsy over the edge. Yeah, we were. We probably should have talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the show, just in case we lost some people <laughs> along the way here. But uh, yeah, th- they've got a couple other really good things going on. They have uh, group rates. So if you're sending more, I can't remember if it's three or I know at three. Uh, I think it's three or four. You can start with the group rate, uh, but you can reduce your costs if you go as a group or if you send multiple people. And then the other thing that they have is an unlimited package too. We just signed uh, four of our personnel up the other day for the group unlimited. Uh, so they got the group price and they all signed up for the unlimited package. So they get all the hot classes and class and, and the conference, all that kind of stuff all packaged in one uh, really good deal. And uh, for us, we're quite a ways away from there, but it's it's still drivable. And so we it's not horridly expensive to send put four people in a vehicle and, and send them down there and, and pay for some hotel rooms and yeah, get them some, some really good training. Take some turns driving on the way down. And if you don't have four people to send, but your neighboring department's got a person who's interested and you do, hey, team up and share stories on the way out to FDIC and back because, yeah, we've... Um, Moorhead and Fargo have, have partnered up in the past to send people down in a van and that kind of stuff so that we're lightening that load and yeah. all that. Yeah. You won't be disappointed with the experience. No. I guarantee you that. No, but it uh, definitely is a great time. All right. To our one remaining listener, thanks for sticking all the way through the show. And uh, we'll be back again in another month with another exciting topic that oh, I can almost guarantee will not be about. We'll ocean. title this one before bedtime. <laughs> Listen to this. It'll put you right to sleep. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Tailboard Talk. Don't forget to tune in each week, Monday through Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 8.30 p.m. Pacific, for Fire Engineering Talk Radio. You can also subscribe to all of our shows on iTunes. Just search for Fire Engineering Talk Radio. Check out our educational programs and consultation services. They're all available at tailboardconsulting.com. There you can find links to all of our shows and our magazine articles. Thanks for listening and join us again next month for another episode of Tailboard Talk on Fire Engineering Talk Radio. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit magnagrip.com.